This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Young people are so capable and, you know, you and I could have another show right now about helicopter parents and how we're disabling like our kids from being independent or critical thinkers because they are, we're, we're not letting them be empowered during these times. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly. This is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And today we are going to talk about how we can stop or prevent school violence. This is one of those things that's been debated for a while here regarding the accurate shooter at school. Is this something that's preventable or not? And I think that if you take a look at some of the studies that are being done here, the CDC even states, the first step in preventing school violence is to understand the extent and nature of the problem. So CDC, the U.S. Uh, Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Justice have gathered to analyze data from a variety of sources to gain a more uh, complete understanding of school violence. According to the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, nearly 8% of students have been in physical fight on school property one or more times in the 12 months before the survey was taken. Nationwide, 6% of students um, have not gone to school at least one day in the 30 days uh, before the survey because they felt it would be unsafe for school on their way to or from school. So looking back at this, you know, as a kid growing up, we had fights in school. We had our, our differences out there. I'm sure that there were kids being bullied. I know for a fact that you know, I helped stop a couple of uh, bullying that was going on to some of the younger kids uh, when I was uh, a senior. But it was different. I think it was different. I don't know. We didn't have access to to the, the internet uh, to continue bullying. It only happened once school. Pretty much when the kids went home, that it was over. But it continues now, day in, day out. And how do we stop this stuff from happening? And so one of the solutions that have come up is the idea of having the student leaders come up and do anti-bullying stuff themselves and really look at the kids that are, are marginalized and bring them back into the fold um, so they're not alone, they don't feel bullied, uh, they don't feel that they need to act out in hostile ways uh, towards the students, uh, the perceived and sometimes actual perpetrators of, of the bullying towards them. So I think this is uh, kind of going forward. So I'm pretty stoked to be able to bring somebody who started the program, Julia Gabor, uh, started a program here where she is going to schools and teaching children how to one adjust to some of the emotional issues that are going on out there and two how to be a leader themselves in uh, anti-bullying anti-school violence space so I'm pretty excited about this before we start the uh, the interview, I just want to remind you that you can go to emweekly.com uh, to look at past episodes, ask, do the Ask Todd button uh, through there as well, and to see uh, some of the blog articles that are up there uh, on different topics that we've been discussing over the last uh, 77 weeks. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and let's get into the interview. 
Hey guys, I'm excited to have uh, Julia Gabor with me today, and I got to meet her at the Safe Schools Conference um, in Orange County, California. And uh, today, we're just going to talk about her program where she is using the principles of leadership to make schools safe by just really empowering uh, the students. So Julia, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you so much, Todd. I'm really excited, flattered, humbled to be on the show. So, Julia, tell me a little bit about yourself and then how you got involved with really teaching teens to, and, and well, I guess less than teens too, like children in general, to really mm-hmm. learn how to be leaders and to lead themselves out of, uh, out of being a, at risk. Okay, it's a great question. Uh, the truth is that my passion for teaching and learning came from my own personal past and the way that I grew up. I'm originally from New York City, and I grew up uh, in, if I give you the years, you're going to know how old I am, but I'm going to do it anyway. I grew up in the 1970s and 80s, and I was a little bit of a street kid with parents who were from Greenwich Village. They were artists and really active in civil rights. And I um, had a very liberal upbringing and I wound up spending a lot of time uh, growing up on the streets of New York, not because my parents didn't love me, but because I was free and it was a different time. And as I started going into adolescence, my parents had gotten divorced and my father was absent for a while in my life. And by the time I was a teenager, I found myself uh, angry and irritated and feeling isolated and started making poor decisions, right? I think we're, we're familiar with that with our youth now when they feel like they're slighted somehow in adolescence. The basic reaction is to not make the smartest decisions. And through my childhood, I wound up in retrospect learning a lot of lessons. And I think, you know, to be honest, if I had not left New York City to go to college. I was lucky enough to have a kind of medium average and I got into a state school and on financial aid, I left New York and that changed the trajectory for me in terms of the path that I was going on because I grew up really fast. By the time I was 17, I had done a lot of things that many young people had done, you know, living in a fast city life. So I wound up working in my 20s in New York City, also as an artist. I was a theater person and I produced shows and always volunteering with inner city kind of urban youth uh, in New York. And when I was 30, I thought, oh, you know, I should go to California and I should be a famous movie star and I should make millions of dollars in the movies. And then I can come back to New York when I'm 40 and I'll start a nonprofit for kids, keeping them safe after school, doing things like academic enrichment and having uh, sports and theater and arts and you could see teaching and learning in this beautiful building that I was going to have and I was going to I was going to hire all my friends who were working with youth also and pay them lots and lots of money I had this fantasy like a real (laughs) fantasy about what I would do and what happened was I came to California and my story became really like everybody else's acting story when they go, oh, it wasn't for me. And and that was disappointing and kind of heartbreaking. But another chip or kind of notch in my belt, uh, building my own resilience and grit about how to navigate life, learning the hard way. And, and I feel like my experience, Todd, is I've had to learn the hard way most of the time. And so the passion for the work that I do now comes from a place of helping young people understand that they have choices and that they don't have to feel isolated. When I was here for two years in California and Los Angeles, 
I was really, you know, I had five jobs. I was living off of credit cards. I had no health insurance. And I was, you know, having that LA story of, a, of an actress unhappy. And I said to a friend of mine, screaming in tears, all I want to do is work with kids and, and I don't have a million dollars. And he said, well, why do you need a million dollars to work with kids? And it never occurred to me to do it any other way. So all of a sudden, it was like the light bulb went off. And I started volunteering in South LA uh, in a school on 92nd and Hoover. And if you're familiar with the LA area, you know that that's a, you know, it's a little bit gang infested and it was a rough area. And it was probably my favorite uh, experience working with youth. And I was working with middle school youth, hands-on, frontline. And I was there for three years and did some really uh, kind of phenomenal work with kids in leadership and team building and goal setting. And then I got very, very lucky and I got hired by the Tiger Woods Foundation. And they are located in Anaheim, California. And they brought me in to run a character education curriculum, teaching teachers how to work with youth around character education and going around the country and working with school districts and after school programs. And that was kind of really the beginning of my more serious, I would say, second career. And then I got my master's in educational leadership, and I've worked at a couple other companies since. And then most recently, starting this year, I've launched my own education company, working with kids uh, in a holistic approach to creating the next generation of mindful leaders, right? So we're taking concepts like mind for mindfulness and body, which is the exploration of healthy behaviors, food, nutrition, and even food inequity. Another topic we focus on is community, which is um, cultural diversity and empathy and tolerance. And then the fourth uh, concept that we work with is digital and social media awareness, helping kids really balance and understand how much time they should be spending on devices. And lastly, we ask them to put them into these, these kind of concepts into a real-life application scenario where they uh, take the content that they've learned and they have to apply it into a, another environment, an external environment, having some kind of response from the world that they can show off what they've learned. So it's not social-emotional learning just to try to understand and analyze their feelings, but it's what do you do when you understand how to use your tools? So I know that's a little long-winded, but I think it's important to kind of hit on all the, the trajectory of how I got to where I am. That's great, actually. And and I had a lot of questions that kind of came to mind and, and how we can... And as emergency managers, you might be going, well, why are we talking about an education program? Uh, because, and, and this is my thought on this, is that one those are the people who are coming up behind us to be the next leaders in emergency management at some point, maybe. And then these are the kids that when something's going south, as far as like an emergency, that they're already built in this leadership role within their school and then within their community and starting programs at the schools like CERT, like uh, Campus CERT and Teen CERT. Uh, Julia's students are the type of people who we, we want to be part of these programs. I think it's important to be able to partnership with community-based programs like what Julia is doing, and that's why we have her on, on the show today. So, Julia, what kind of leadership program do you really um, – I, I got to talk to you at the, at the safe school, so I think I, I have a really basic understanding of this, but I really want to kind of get this out, is what kind of leadership uh, programs do you have with these kids, especially the at-risk youth? 
Well, it's similar to what I just described. All of the programming we do is really based in self-discovery and helping them understand who they are so that they can make strong decisions or positive decisions when they're in times of whether it is physical crisis, intellectual confusion, emotional insecurity. You know, we're working with the young people on their insides so that they become leaders and that they can make stronger choices. A lot of the programming we do is based around a framework from an organization called CASEL, or some people say CASEL, it's C-A-S-E-L. And, you know, they have five core competencies that help young people with decision-making and self-awareness and relationship skills. So again, like we are working with young people in an activity-based curriculum where they feel empowered to make positive choices about, you know, their futures or their day-to-day life, where they don't feel victimized, where under-resourced kids don't feel like my circumstances define me, Mm -hmm. where they feel like they are empowered, right? We want to flip the switch. We want to work with growth mindsets instead of being set backwards. And, you know, when we were at the Safe Schools Conference, One of the things that happened there, they asked us to come in and do a session, a learning session for the attendees. And the session we had was full. And they said in the session, wow, we're so glad to have this here. We don't have anything like this here working that's focusing on the student. All of the sessions are focused around emergency or drug paraphernalia or, you know, um, how do you handle shootings on campus or high suicide rates? So they were relieved for the focus on the students and how to work with the students directly because what's going to happen to the kid after those events, Todd? Like, how do we work with them to help them emotionally recap who they are and make them stronger? It's programs like ours uh, that do that kind of work. I think your program could even be more on the prevention side because a lot of the school shootings that have gone on have been really the, the student reacting to their perceived wrongs and a situation to where they just don't have a way to get a clear to find closure on some issues that are happening at school. And I think that mm-hmm. with the peer-to-peer leadership program like what you have, where the students can say, hey, you know, Jimmy over there is having some serious issues. We can talk to him and get him help at a peer-to-peer without being top-down, him getting in trouble. And I, I kind of love that idea of really preventing. And you don't know if he did or not. You know, with something like mm-hmm. this, you don't know if you're preventing it. And it's, it's like one of those things like, if it doesn't happen, did you prevent it? And, and I think we could. I think that reaching out really has that preventive uh, streak to it. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And there are uh, organizations out there that do, right, you've probably heard this acronym, PBIS, which is Preventative Behavior Intervention Strategies. And they are, they work, and we have some of the qualities in our actual curriculum that are like these, but these are intervention, you know, strategies for young people to know and learn behaviors before they encounter something that's high risk. So, you know, it's the kind of, it's a, sometimes people think it's too progressive to be, you know, really transparent or honest, where instead of putting a kid into detention and having them sit there in a quiet room or having them just do homework, that you're using the kinds of programs that we've created in a positive way while they're in detention so they can learn how to behave differently instead of being punished and feeling worse about themselves. Right. And sometimes that makes the, the, the problem even worse when it comes to, to student behavior. You know, I've worked in a, in a bit uh, in, with at-risk youth 
at, at a high school in, in San Gabriel in San Gabriel Valley. And I know that giving those kids the the trust and the uh, attention uh, really brings them to the fact of where they go, oh, I want to work hard. And these kids aren't lost by any means. They're just, they need guidance. And sometimes they, they lack that guidance. And I think, I, I now you tell us, told a story of a kid that came over to you and wanted to get this training. Can you, can you tell that story again for us? Oh, yeah. Thanks for remembering. I'm smiling if you can't hear it. So there was a young gentleman who is a rising senior. I was at a social emotional learning conference for LAUSD in the spring. And this young guy, he came charging over to my vendor booth and he said, hey, he said, listen, uh, my name is Blank and I read about your program and I'm really interested. You know, can you tell me about it? So I gave him the spiel and uh, he said, oh, it sounds so exciting. It's perfect for my school. I'm I'm charged with a leadership group. And me and my cohort, we're going to be rising seniors. We have to find an initiative to work with our underclassmen. Is this something, Julia, he said, is this something, Julia, that you could train me and my cohort and that we could be peer mentors to uh, upcoming freshmen or sophomores? And, you know, this is the kind of work as a youth development specialist that makes you just elated and your (laughs) eyes pop out of your head and the hair comes off your, you know, like your scalp. And I said, of course, I said, this is exactly what we want to happen. We want young people like you to have vision and want to be involved in your community and help your school and become peer mentors. You know, where do we start? How do we begin? So while we work a lot with staff, educators, teachers, after-school program people, we also work a little bit in the foster uh, arena, the foster communities. We train teachers and educators. We call it Educator Grit. Our company is called Kid Grit. And we do Educator Grit, too, which is the first piece of it is their own self-reflection on really what their commitment is to their own health and wellness and and their passion and their why, like their why, their leadership about why they're working with young people and what their responsibility is. So we do the training around their own wellness first, and then we train the curriculum. And it goes, matches really beautifully, kind of, you know, hand to glove, just, you know, just really nicely. They complement each other. So we do the same thing with students. We do leadership groups and we teach them uh, their own empowered skills around, you know, discovering who they are and how to make great choices and be self-aware and motivated. And then how can they pay it forward? How can they become leaders and peer mentors? So uh, the work we do is really holistic for all ages. What are some of the challenges that you've had with, say, schools and administration? The rest of that story when we return from our break. Exercises are a cornerstone of emergency preparedness, but can be costly, time-consuming, and complicated. TTX Vault can ease the exercise planning process with our wide array of tabletop, drill, and functional exercise packages that are fully adjustable. Once you choose the appropriate discipline and emergency scenario, you'll receive the exercise, all HSEEP suggested paperwork pre-filled out, access to our online simulation environment, Chelsea County, USA, and 30 minutes of phone consultation. Get your time back at ttxvault.com. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. 
Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors, because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly, and hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. What are some of the challenges that you've had with, say, schools and administration? I think, you know, mostly administration is tasked with so many initiatives, and when testing becomes really the priority or attendance or the ADA becomes the priority, things, programs like SEL, social emotional learning programs, or positive behavioral intervention programs become maybe secondary, more likely third or fourth important. And what is lost is that in order for young people to feel like they want to learn, they have to feel safe. And I think I said this before, it can be emotionally safe, it can be physically safe, it can be intellectually safe, it can be academically safe. If they feel like teachers are abusive or mean and they're afraid to read aloud, then they're not creating a kind of holistic approach to working with individual young people. So administrators are caught between, they may even know that they have to get this kind of work in, but they don't know where to fit it in the day. And it becomes frustrating for everyone because they have behavioral issues that they can't manage well, but, and their kids are not doing well, but they don't want to spend time. This is a challenge. They don't want to spend time or really are understanding yet what school culture shift is in working with this kind of whole child development piece. Could we use a program like this outside of the school setting, say, like a youth leadership council type thing that we have uh, for kids that want to get involved with emergency response and emergency management, say like the Explore programs or the Teen Cert and stuff like that. Does this program fit that? Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yes, this is we built this program to be used in several different communities. We just had a meeting in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're, we're scoping out whether we're going to make some partnerships there. And it's everything from working with, you know, I can't really call out the organizations, but there's several different organizations and it can be from scouting. It can be from leadership. It can be in YMCAs. You can use this program in just any after school program. It's a really flexible program. The the thing that we require the most really is that whoever is facilitating will get trained on it because we believe that just like any kind of emergency, you know, physical application anywhere, this is as important to be trained and knowledgeable because you're dealing with the inside, like the heart of a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can really understand that for sure. You know, we talked about this before, but Brock Long, a FEMA administrator, and his stressing right now with doing whole community emergency management and planning, and specifically getting the community involved. And I really see your program as being one of those tenants that is helping the community, especially communities that have had issues, especially after like uh, the shootings in, in Parkland or Columbine types place or, you know, any other disaster for that matter, where kids are trying to process what that looks like to them. And I think your program mm-hmm. really fits there as well. How, how could somebody who is interested in learning more about your program get a hold of you? Our website is under construction. We have our splash page up. <laughs> 
right? Of course, but it is, you know, www.kid-grit.com. We are all over social media. You can find us anywhere. We're pretty active. We just threw up some pictures today of some really beautiful mindset activities that are happening in a summer program. But we're easy to find, easy to Google. We also sell a book on Amazon called Kid Grit, the book pretty simple. And these are 25 authentic stories from students that my partner and I have taught over the years who are sending a message to the next generation of high school students. So our students are 17 to 27 years old. These are the authors of the book. And they're these little vignettes about how they overcame challenges when they were in high school. And we couldn't have asked for better, more prolific topics to come up that really deal with almost everything that young people deal with. Things like poverty, racism, diversity, coming out of the closet, being transgender, two different stories, alcoholism, facing incest. So it's a high school level reading book. They're short, like essay style almost. They're almost like college application statements, like they're personal statements. They're so beautifully written. And so we sell that on Amazon also. We sell, it sells for educators if people want it in bulk. We sell it for less money than on Amazon, of course. But that's another tool that we use for discussion groups with young people who are really suffering. Uh, I meant to pick that up at the conference and I freaking didn't get back to you. Damn it, I'm going to have to buy it off of Amazon. <laughs> Maybe you'll get one in the mail after this podcast. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, that book, I, I got to pick it up when I was at the conference, and it was, it's a beautiful book. It's, I, I got to flip through, read a couple of little essays, and, and they're, they are really well done. And, and it's, it's touching to see that these kids are, are laying their heart and soul out on, the, on, that, on those pages. And, it's, and I do recommend to buy that book. You know, go to Amazon. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. You know, Moving forward, I mean, do you see how we can, uh, say, partner the program, but how we could add this program to our existing uh, CERT program, especially with the youth? Like, is this something that be that we could easily add to it, or would it be a little bit harder to uh, to do the curriculum? I believe that these these lessons are forty five minutes each, and we designed it so that you can implement them any way you want to, and you just have to make a strategy, a plan on how do you want how do you want to use the lessons. Okay. Right? It's really flexible. You, it, the, the lessons don't have to build on each other. So if you could say, oh, you know, today I really need to concentrate. We need to focus on some like relaxation techniques. And maybe you're going to do some mindful breathing or maybe you're going to say, listen, like, we're having some issues on campus around cultural diversity. Let's pick up one of those lessons. Or, you know what, why are our kids heads down when they're walking with their computer, with their phones in their hands? Why don't they understand that they're going to walk into a wall or get hit by a car? Like, we need to have this conversation. There's no curriculum around it. Oh, my gosh. Wait, there is curriculum. We know a group that's doing work around self-analysis around that kind of stuff. So I believe without knowing enough that you could probably implement lessons and activities at any time. Yeah, the reason why I ask the question is because it's kind of heavy. You know, it can be heavy for the kids uh, of talking about like, you know, destruction and large scale disasters and, you know, kind of practicing for that. And, you know, I think sometimes we, and my wife reminds me a lot when, I, when I'm talking about with things with my son that I always, I'm always 15. And she goes, yeah, he's 15, you know, he, and these things, you know, can affect him in a way that you don't think about at that age. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. When we start seeing those images of, of death and destruction on TV, like I'm up in Reading right now with the fires that are happening up there and, and Colorado mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, so some these kids get into these heavy conversations. And I don't think that we do enough to psychologically prepare them for what they would mm-hmm. see in, in a disaster. 
And that's kind of you know, I I think that's a really good point. One of one of the things I noticed in my research and development when I was examining other programs that are similar to ours is that a lot of these social emotional learning programs in terms of interventions are used, especially even at young kids, like they use cartoon characters or colors. Uh, and colors can be good at times, but it, they don't take it. It's not serious enough. And it's almost like a lack of respect to the student mind. And uh, one of the things that makes us unique is that this is the work is so student driven. Many times kids are inspired to go further and deeper because it is they're driving the learning, which is a really beautiful way to work with young people, especially in high stakes where they feel empowered, where they can start to make decisions on their own. And especially also if they get knowledge, if they understand content or, you know, what to do, you have to let them be able to feel safe in their own knowledge. So that's a really powerful way to approach it. And, you know, in so I think, yes, as intervention and in high stakes places, if you're giving them uh, power and content that they can really act on in an effective way, I think that that's a really great idea. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what this is. You know, I, I, that's why I see the parallel uh, with what you're doing and with those youth programs. You know, I mean, even so much so, like if you talk about like the American Red Cross and some of their youth programs, you know, you're giving them responsibilities and asking them to do things you know, as far as like CPR, for instance, on, you know, on babies, if you will, and, and not mm-hmm. giving them not giving them that. Uh, support of saying, you know, this is this is what why and this is what you could do. And if you start feeling bad about that, it's okay. And this is how you can deal with an emotional aspect of things. We don't, mm-hmm. don't think we do enough of that. And you know, the old school way of when I grew up was, you know, suck it up and this is what it is, and don't tell anybody about your emotions. Because I think it's really damaged some people, you know. And I think that's part of the mm-hmm. reason why we have some, you know, PTSD issues as well, you know. Yeah, I think so too. And and you think about young people in other parts of the world who are living in third world countries and the enormous amount of responsibility they learn at a young age from, you know, fielding water, growing rice, you know, feeding their brothers and sisters. They're really young parents and they're 11 years old. I mean, young people are so capable and, you know, you and I could have another show right now about helicopter parents and how we're disabling like our kids from being independent or critical thinkers because they are, we're, we're not letting them be empowered during these times to make decisions on their own, right? They're so dependent on a phone for answers. They can't think for themselves in the time of crisis. And that's a big deal. And I'm sure that there is research around it. And if there isn't now, there will be soon. But this is really an issue where everybody looks to Wikipedia for the answers. And if you're in a high stakes situation, Wikipedia is not going to be your guy. Right. I mean, you know, think about it. If, if you're dealing with uh, just like an evacuation from a fire, you don't have you don't have time to, to research it. You know, you have to be able to act and have good decision making processes in your head already uh, to know what to do. And so I think, again, I really enjoy the idea of empowering our children to be able to make good quality decisions and be be able to emotionally center themselves and, and not worry about make, you know, not worry about making mistakes and, and understand that they can work through that. I think that's kind of cool stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. 125%. <laughs> so coming in you know, real quick, what book or books outside of the one that we talked about already, would you recommend to somebody who really wants to learn more about this type of stuff? 
Okay, so there are a few books in the academic and educator and parental realm that I would look at. The first one is called Glow Kids, and that's by a doctor, uh, a psychiatrist named Nicholas Kadaris, Dr. Kadaris, and he writes about what's happening to young people's brains while they're, the adolescent brain, while it's developing, and the infiltration of fast processing skills and what it's doing to our culture, our society. And it's very provocative, and there's definitely an agenda behind it, but it's, he'll tell you stories and antidotes and research that will knock your socks off. That's one about what's happening to our kids and the way they're growing up today in this era. And the other one, uh, two authors to really look at are Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck. Angela Duckworth really Duckworth works with uh, the concept of grit and developing grit and resilience so that we're preparing not just young people, but really adults too in the workforce, how to, you know, stay with something, be resilient, not give up, really find your inner toughness and that she claims that it is a muscle to build, that it is something that you can learn. And then the other author is Carol Dweck, and she works on mindset. You know, it's a negative mindset versus a growth mindset. And uh, this is really powerful for young people to intellectualize so that when they've been in the at-risk or under-resourced or traumatized by something, it really shows them in an intellectual way. You move it from the emotion into intellect that they can make choices to change the way their brains are functioning. So those are some of those books. And then for kids, um, if I can, for young people who are starting to explore themselves and looking at personal development for the first time, I don't know if you know this book, but The Four Agreements. Okay. No, I don't. This is okay. Yeah. The Four Agreements, really just four principles on personal development. It's a small pocketbook and it will change your life. Super easy to follow. But I, for young people who are like 17 to 25 or for someone who's starting to explore really kind of their own self-awareness, it's one of the best first books that you can read, The Four Agreements. That's awesome. And we'll, we'll have all that stuff down in the, in the show notes as well. So for those of you that are, you know, trying to scramble to write their their notes down they'll, they'll be there in the show so you can you can find those and links back to them as well so before we let you go is there anything that you'd like to say directly to the emergency managers out there regarding you know the stuff that you do and and youth in general I think that the things that we spoke about today are so important in terms of being able to uh, have already a system in place to social and emotionally support our young people for times of crisis and then also in recovery, you know, it's not just about the structure of a building or, you know, of course, you know that, but, but that we really want to develop young people with resilience and grit so that they can manage crisis because we are living in a crazy, weird time where kids' suicides are going up and they're shooting each other and it's a problem. So we have to work on this, this when we say the whole child approach, that when you're working with emergency crisis and high stakes, that this is really something to focus on. As an addition, it should be an equal part, not just an afterthought. Yeah, actually, I think it should be a forethought, to be honest with you. So that's a really good point. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really so happy to have you on the show. And maybe we can do this again sometime. Okay, thank you so much. This was really exciting. I appreciate it. Bye. 